0: You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Samuel Stoddard, a congregational minister, said that the neglect of it was a mark of bad preaching. Jonathan Edwards graphically illustrated it in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, to such an extent that during his preaching he needed to stop because people in the congregation were crying and weeping and calling out for deliverance. And if you went back 400 years ago, you'd find that many of the pulpits in New England routinely spoke of this subject because they believed it to be a subject central to the gospel. Anyone want to guess what I'm referring to? The doctrine of hell. That in our world today, it is so difficult to speak of a doctrine that is very important that we must understand as much as we should understand what we can about the doctrine of heaven. So what we're going to seek to do is today answer four questions about hell based on Matthew chapter 25. And I'm going to do something that typically I don't do, and that is in the text we read, we're going to ignore the first half of the text, which is about heaven, because we'll deal with heaven next week. But in this section, if you turn with me to Matthew, chapter 25, we're going to look at four questions about hell. First question, simply, we're going to address is, is there a hell? The second question, why? Why is there a hell? The third, what will hell be like? And the fourth and final question, who will be in hell? And so as we direct our attention to this, The context of this particular discourse by Jesus is it's one of five major discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the fifth and final discourse. Each of those discourses ends with teaching on the reality of judgment. And in this particular case, it's important to realize as Jesus is saying this, this is during Passion Week, the very last week of his life on earth probably around Tuesday of Passion Week. So kind of think about the context of this to hear him talk about the king who is going to come back in light of what they will actually see happen by the end of the week. must seem hard to process all this when you look back through these details. And yet it is in this that Jesus tells us some very important answers to these questions so notice the first question we'll deal with, is there a hell? Now, of course, if you are a Christian and you're familiar with the Bible, your immediate answer will be yes. But, but how would you prove that to someone? That it's not just a fabrication. If you were to look generally today, we know it's a subject not talked about that much, even from the pulpit. And the lack of teaching about hell reveals sort of a growing uneasiness about this doctrine Uh, it reveals a growing rejection i think by many of the concept of a literal hell this is evident by two views that have gained more traction recently but have been around for a long time one is universalism The, the thought that everyone is going to go to heaven you know that god is a gracious he's a loving god nobody's perfect but but we'll all we'll all get there And we we can see in our pluralistic world that that is a very popular view. Just the concept many people have is just God is is love. Jesus loved everybody. You should love everybody. Uh, The second view that has continued to gain traction is a view of annihilationism. What this basically teaches is that yes, God will judge, but his judgment will be you will be annihilated. You will cease to exist. So in other words, your punishment is non-existence. But is that actually what the Bible teaches? And and if it doesn't teach that, why would it be important to understand a, a literal, eternal concept of hell? Well, look with me at Matthew chapter 25 and verses 30 and 31 begin with Jesus speaking of a day of accounting of judgment. Notice it says when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Again, keep in mind that context of what's going to happen by the end of the week. And yet here he is saying the Son of Man is going to return in in glory and and all peoples, all nations will be brought before him. A, A glorious, a victorious scene that will not look like that's going to be possible based on the events that will happen by the end of the week. But you notice that Jesus clearly implies here the reality of hell. That in this day of judgment, there is a place called hell. Now notice in the scriptures, we have no delineated location of where hell is. It's often presented as parallel or opposite of heaven. We tend to think of up and down. But the Bible does not give you a specific location. They don't disclose that. Nor should that be our greatest concern in trying to locate where hell is hell or heaven is your bigger concern would be i just want to make sure i'm not going to be in one of those and i am going to be in the other so the reality of hell is clearly taught notice in the gospel of matthew which we tend to think of the gospels as accurate records of jesus's ministry we think of his love but seven times in matthew he will direct teaching that christ will give on the subject of hell says to us this is an important part of the gospel. That the early preachers in New England had it right when they said, you know what, we need to talk about this more. And have it be a routine part of the ministry from the pulpit not just something we do once in a while. And so I would argue based on what we're going to see alluded to here as well as taught in other places that hell is a real place it's a place of eternal, conscious punishment. And, and we'll kind of unfold that more as we look at this. But it is a real place. It's not a figurative term. Uh, it's not a reference, as you might hear sometimes people say jokingly, well, well, this is hell on earth. No, it's, it's not even close to what this conscious, eternal, literal place is going to be like. Now, there are three different words that are primarily used in the Bible to address the reality of hell. And you're probably familiar with these, so I'll just touch on them lightly. Uh, If you would turn to Psalm 139 for a moment, here's an example of one of the primary words used in the Old Testament. Uh, It is the word sheol. So as you look through the Old Testament, you will find references to Sheol. But in Psalm 139, you'll notice the word Sheol is translated a different way. So this would tell you sometimes it can be referred to as the pit, the abyss, or the depths, as you see here. So in Psalm 139, you have David speaking of just the the amazing thought of God's omnipresence. That he is everywhere. And so you notice in verse 9, or excuse me, verse 8 of Psalm 139, David says, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, which is literally Sheol, you are there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. So you have this contrast between Sheol, the depths, and certainly being taken flight up to the highest point that God's presence is there. But if you were to also go through other verses in the Old Testament, Sheol can be used in one of two different ways. One is simply can be used for the grave. In other words, it's a place where everyone goes. They, they go to the earth. They die. They are put in the ground. They go to Sheol. But there are other times that it is used in the Old Testament for a reference to the opposite of heaven. In other words, to a place of punishment, the opposite of being in God's presence. So you have two different ways it can be used. But directing your attention now to the New Testament, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5 and verse 30. Matthew chapter 5. When you come to the New Testament, you see there is one term that is the equivalent of Sheol, and it is the term Hades. Now, often, sometimes, that can be rendered differently in the New Testament. Sometimes it is rendered Hades. Sometimes it's rendered hell, and and you'll see why. Uh, Sometimes it's rendered the, the pit, the abyss. But notice in Matthew 5, verse 30, In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, there you get to verse 30, speaking of the seriousness of sin. Jesus says, And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, the word hell there is actually the word Hades, which is the equivalent of the Old Testament word sheol. Now, the reason I'm pointing that out is there is a slight distinction. Uh, And the fact is this, that Hades, or sometimes rendered hell, is more a picture in the New Testament of the the intermediate state. In other words, when, when we think of what happens at death, immediately the body and soul are separated. And the soul is either going to go into the presence of the Lord immediately or experiencing the, the torments and reality of hell immediately. But the body is still in the ground. Now, that body will stay in the ground, as we'll see, till Christ's triumphant return. And then the body and soul will be reunited, and then there'll be the judgment that determines one's eternal state. So when you read the word Hades, what you're actually describing is this state of what happens in between death and Christ's return. So there's not soul sleep, there's not an unconscious existence, there there is a reality to hell that these terms speak of. Now compare that to, as we were just reading in Matthew 5.30, the word hell does come from another word, Gehenna and that does appear in the New Testament, I think it's 12 times, Gehenna is more accurately that eternal state. When we think of the lake of fire, that is Gehenna. Now, to give you an idea of, well, is is there really a hell? The picture of Gehenna is based off a literal geographical location. Not indicating where hell is, but it gives you a picture. So, in other words, if you were to look in biblical history, in the Old Testament, Gehenna is the place where child sacrifices were offered to Moloch, a pagan deity. And it's recorded for us in the Old Testament. This is where they offer child sacrifices. When you get to the New Testament, this same location is not necessarily now a pagan worship site, but the exact same location is just outside of Jerusalem, where garbage from the city was continually burned human waste was dumped there to be burned and so it was a place that continually was burning and and reeked of its its smell and its aroma what what a a graphic sort of picture to us of of the, the character of hell the sights and sounds that maybe we would and should associate with it so there definitely is a real hell. It is a place. And, and Scripture identifies for us the reality of hell through both Jesus in this discussion of the sheep and the goats and through the use of these different terms. So hopefully that gives us a little more confidence when, when someone says, is there a hell? Our answer should be absolutely and we should never speak of that lightly or think it's just an expression that people use. It, it's a terrifying place. It, it's an awful place. But that brings us to our next question, why? Why is there a hell? Is, is this some indication, as some would think today, that, that God is just a, a monster? That, that he's just so cruel that he, he made a place to just see people... Wreathe in agony? Well, go back to Matthew chapter 25. It's very interesting. In this discussion in Matthew, Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25 is answering questions about his second coming. And he's answering questions about what happens at death. So this is the topic he's addressing, preparing for his own departure very soon. And he draws on this thought of sheep and goats. Now, to us, they may look very different. We're thinking, well, I've seen sheep, I've seen goats. You know, what's the big deal? They look very different. You could probably tell by looking at them. That was not the case in ancient times. Uh, Typically, the sheep and goats did intermingle throughout the day in grazing. uh, And they tended to look very close from a distance. So it wasn't as if you could just look and say, what's the big deal? I can tell where they are. No, what Jesus is talking about here is even in the church, we know until Christ's return, there will be unbelievers in the church. Even the best that any church does to screen members, you can still have someone who's not genuinely a believer and who puts on the the exterior that they are, but they're not. And that weeding out is going to take place at this great judgment. But it brings us in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Why? Why is there a hell? You notice what Jesus says here. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Yes, God created hell, as he created all things in his perfect sovereignty and will. And it wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't that this caught him by surprise. Uh, God's infinite wisdom and knowledge, he created hell for a specific purpose. And you know, here it speaks of this is the punishment that awaits Satan and his angels. Those who defiantly opposed God. Now, as we'll see, that doesn't mean they're the only ones there, nor does it imply somehow as some people like to say, well, I don't mind going to hell because I'll see my friends there. Well, this is no place as we'll see for company, enjoyment, for getting together. The whole nature of it is specifically for the purpose of punishment. But it leads us to a question, well, does that sound cruel? So I mentioned that the view of annihilationism is is tracking with many people because the thought is, well, at least that's kind of merciful. You know, God's going to punish you, yes, but his punishment isn't going to be continually. You know, it's going to have a duration, and, and it will end, and it'll all be over. And so with the doctrine of an eternal hell, one of the struggles is sometimes... We look at that, we say that that just sounds so harsh. Forever. Not not a day, not a week, not no opportunity for repentance forever. So if God created it, then we need to think about why are we warned in scriptures that to fall into the hands of God is a terrible thing. Well, we need to remember that divine wrath is the execution of God's justice against sin. Divine wrath is the execution of God's justice against sin. As one Dutch theologian put it, Gerhard Vos, sin committed against an infinite God is deserving of infinite punishment. As harsh as that is, And I don't believe any Christian should speak of hell with like a smile on their face or a sense of, well, I'm not going there so I can speak of this kind of arrogantly. That this should trouble us, but it shouldn't cause us to back down from saying, you know what, this is the just punishment of offending and opposing an infinite God. The just punishment would be infinite punishment, eternal. Punishment. Just as we could offset that by saying, if you know Christ as your own Savior, you will have eternal life, everlasting life. Well, the opposite would be everlasting punishment, eternal punishment. Notice we live in a world where, as much as people hesitate to speak of hell, not just that there is a hell, but that it's eternal punishment. Yet we crave for justice. So some of you may have been following news about Jeffrey Epstein, this millionaire, uh, and just committed suicide. And so he will not stand trial, obviously, and anything like that. And, and many are furious, saying, how could this happen? The victims deserve you know, to have him in court, to hear for us." Notice what they're saying, where we want justice. And I think you meet most people, and they, they will deny hell, but at the same time, they're thinking, well, somebody who's been bad, somehow they have to pay for that. That somewhere, they'll get what they deserve. Well, you can't get what you deserve in that sense if you have no reality of hell. And ironically, if you're sitting here and you know Christ, The miracle of salvation is we get what we don't deserve. But why is there a hell? Because God is holy and he's perfectly just. So we've addressed the question of, is there a hell? We've looked briefly at, why is there a hell? And now to just pause and consider, what will hell be like? So what I want to do is, I have five different references I'd like to get some volunteers to to take one of these. And you'll just read it out to us. And and we as a group will say, all right, what does this passage tell us about the nature of hell? And you may have your own immediate thoughts already, but but I want us to consider the the variety of places in the Bible where God says, not just there is a hell, but, but let me tell you what it will be like. Um, So, let me give these out. Uh, Matthew 11. Someone just, Leslie. Matthew 11, 22 through 23. Uh, Matthew 13. All right, Marion. Matthew 13, 41 through 42. Luke 16. Who would like that? Ashley, Luke 16, 22 through 24. Two more. Acts 24. Anyone can take this, Heather? Acts 24, 14 through 15. And last one, they're going quick. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. All right, Karen's got that. So each of these are going to tell us something about the duration, the description of hell. Because you notice in this discussion of the sheep and the goats, clearly referring to people, Jesus does say that I will say to them, Depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire. So we have this picture of fire used here in the sense of not a purifying illustration, but a punitive illustration, an illustration of judgment. Now this is where we we realize you're describing something that we've never seen and have nothing to compare it to. Because we look at a fire, and typically a fire burns itself out at some point. But that's not the case when you're reading this description. It's an eternal fire. It doesn't consume itself and stop. So let's take Matthew 11:22 through23. So don't you think for a moment, what, what does Jesus mean when he's talking about these other cities and he says it's going to be more bearable for these cities than for you? If, if hell is because God is just and holy, is God saying that there will be degrees of punishment based on his justice? Yes. Just as there will be degrees, as we'll see, of rewards in heaven. Now, this does not mean that there are certain parts of hell that are not as bad as others. As we'll see, it is an awful, terrifying place. But at the same time, there will be degrees of punishment because God is a just God. Let's go to Matthew 13, 41 through 42. 42. Yes. So notice this thought of not just again of a a fire that's all-consuming, weeping and gnashing of teeth. A, A description of tremendous sorrow, pain, anguish that's associated with hell. Let's go on to the next one, Luke 16 and verses 22 through 24. This is in the context of Jesus is talking about Two individuals, Lazarus and a, and a rich man. And the primary point of the parable is about loving material things more than you love God. But interwoven in that, you have some interesting points made about the afterlife and what happens in that immediate state at death. So Luke 16, through 24. Notice in that you have the conscious existence of a soul. That that Lazarus and the rich man who's calling out and sees his condition is fully conscious. He's he's not asleep uh, or anything like that. Notice there's a sensation and awareness of pain. And that's very important to think about. Even in the intermediate state, before Christ returns, that individual... As we'll see, who does not know Christ, immediately at death, they are experiencing the reality of hell. And then let's go on to Acts chapter 24, 14 and 15. Acts 24, 14 and 15. Now notice Paul in his testimony before Felix here is saying that there will be a resurrection, a Christ's return of not just the just and their bodies, but the unjust and their bodies. Now that should change our understanding then of the eternal state of hell is where body and soul are reunited. And hell will include not just emotional distress, spiritual distress. But if you have a body, even though that body is different from the one that we have right now, will you also experience physical agony and pain and discomfort? It would seem to make sense. It gives you a full, more comprehensive picture of of how how can not just a soul suffer, but now you have a soul and a body reunited and then judged in an eternal state and finally 2nd Thessalonians 1 and verses 9 and 10 up 9 and 10 okay. so you notice in there it speaks of punishment then it also says you'll be shut out from the presence of God 2 Thessalonians 1 9 and 10 I think she read the wrong right I think so it's, it's, it's it? okay right so notice it speaks of being shut out from the presence of God and being yes yeah 2 Thessalonians 1 9 and 10 We'll have Karen can read it again. So as you think of this phrase, we often will hear people say, "Well, hell is where you're separated from God," and it does speak in Second Thessalonians. You will be shut out from the presence of God, but it may cause you to start to think, "Wait a minute! I thought God is omnipresent, that that He's everywhere." And and I believe that what this is saying is not that God is absent from hell, because He cannot be absent from anywhere in His creation, but what you're experiencing is the absence of his blessings and favor. You are experiencing the presence of his holiness being poured out in wrath because you're a sinner. And that would make sense and be consistent because throughout the Bible, God manifests his presence in different ways. It can be to strengthen you, to bless you, And it can also be to discipline and judge you. So even in hell, God's presence is there. The terrifying thought is you are now in the presence of a holy God without a mediator, and you are sinful. Shouldn't that leave one terrified and distraught and without hope? And that brings us quickly to our final question. Well, well, who will be in hell? And... If we go back to Matthew chapter 25, it's very clear in this discussion that those who will be in hell are those who have rejected Jesus Christ. Because you notice in this discussion, all humanity comes down to two divisions, the sheep and the goats, the sheep who will be ushered into his presence, the goats who will depart from him and be sent into eternal punishment. Notice all of the man-made divisions, classifications we put on, people are all stripped away, and this is the ultimate reality. Who will be in hell? Those who have opposed, rejected Jesus Christ. In a sense, they have committed the same offense that Satan and his angels have. They have sought to worship themselves, not to worship the Lord God. Now, one of the things that may confuse us here is you have this whole discussion about, well, when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was in prison, you did this. And twice in this passage, he mentions the little ones. I believe that that's a reference not to just those in need, just a general thing. In other words, be compassionate toward the poor and the needy, which we have a biblical responsibility to do. But he's referring specifically to to followers of Christ. To believers. And Jesus is not saying here, well, you're saved by works. You know, you, you've done these things, so now you're in. You didn't do these things, you're out. Where this is going is if you did these things, it would reflect that you love me. In other words, that these are not the grounds of your faith, but they're evidence of your faith. So without evidence of faith in Christ, it is proof that you have rejected him. And therefore, you have gotten, in a sense, you could argue, the ultimate just punishment. You have gotten what you've asked for your whole life. I don't want God. I I don't want his blessings. I don't want his interference in my life. I, I want a world without God bothering me. And that is, in a sense, you could argue, the just punishment of hell. It may seem awkward to say, well, what does a good sermon on hell look like? As I go back to the past where someone commented that a good sermon on hell will do at least one of three things. One, it will move you to tremble, that this should distress us. But at the same time, if you know Christ, it should move you to rejoice, to think what you have been saved from by his grace. Secondly, it should, if we understand this, turn us from any sins in our life that if left unchecked would lead us to hell. Sort to of catch all of our attention in this sense. In other words, that we should be secure in our salvation without a question. But if we're unsure, if we're living in sin, this should be a terrifying message in reality for us to think about. And then finally, it should compel you to tell others about Christ. If you believe everything that we just went over, this should change how you look at the people you interact with every day, how you pray for them. Because what we're talking about is what they have. To look forward to, apart from Christ. And notice the reality of hell is that it's a permanent condition. There's no appeals. There's no opportunity for, quote-unquote, a second chance. We've all had our opportunity in Adam, and we failed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as much as we sometimes avoid certain subjects and topics in Scripture. May this not be one that we are guilty of. Lord, that we would never speak about hell without somehow a a tear in our eye, but we would be moved to think of hell, that we would, one, rejoice in our salvation, and two, be more bold in speaking to others about Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.